Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. To see you all this morning, thank you for joining us for worship, and a special welcome to uh, Major Charlie, uh, who is an Army physician, and Casey and Sherry's son, and he will be... um, I guess it's not called retiring, is it? Um, He'll be making a transition out of the Army, where he serves as an Army pathologist, uh, to actually working here at the University of Washington. And uh, so we're looking forward to seeing more of you, uh, Charlie, in the future. And uh, thank uh, thank you for your service that you've already done, and that will no doubt continue here. Pastor Robin mentioned um, the youth and bringing youth together. One of the things that we have in a church uh, of our size is not as many youth as in a mega church, a large church. And so it's a little harder for our young people because um, I don't know if you remember what it was like when you were a teenager, but your mind wasn't always on spiritual things. Uh, Sometimes you were interested in boys and girls. And when you have a relatively small youth group, um, you kind of get used to everybody and you're kind of like, you know, brothers and sisters and whatnot. But um, when you get a larger youth group, it gets a little more interesting. And so one of the innovations that Pastor Robin has brought has been to, uh, to get youth groups together. So Tonight, eight youth groups are getting together um, to, uh, to celebrate um, the Lord, but also to have fun. And it creates what we call critical mass. And so um, our church is actually not a small church. I think the average size church is about 75 people. But, um, but in fact, um, we're just not large enough to have a really large group. So that's one of the ways that we, uh, we compensate for that. Uh, so we're excited about that. Um, also, I uh, wanted to thank uh, the folks who were here over the weekend. I think we have a slide, John. Um, this is uh, North Sound Church, and I think these pictures actually came from my Edmonds News. Um, we love to support the community when we can, and uh, over the last uh, three days, uh, Jim and uh, Corky and Brian and Casey have been very involved in facilitating this. And it's really kind of fun because of all of the young people um, that are engaged. These are high school students that are uh, doing different uh, version vocal and instrumental, uh, instrumental jazz. Uh, we also want to uh, express our uh, condolences to Erlene. Uh, Erlene Stevenson's older sister passed away, and uh, we may uh, saw Erlene in the first service, but you can remember, uh, remember her in prayer. So this morning, we are going to do something that is... Um, not radically different, but a little bit different. Most of the time at North Sound, um, when I preach or someone else on the team preaches, we typically uh, do a topical sermon where we have a theme, uh, and then we bring in a number of other scriptures around that theme. Today, in our Journey to the Cross series, we're going to do something a little bit different, and this is going to be an expository approach, and this is where we go verse by verse. Uh, And we're going to be looking at John chapter 3. And so the reason for mentioning it to you is I often say, you know, open your Bible or your device, but today I really want to encourage you to do that because it's expository and we're just going to go down the verses. So um, I encourage you to either find the Bible that uh, should be in a, in a 
in a pew rack in front of you somewhere, or else your own, uh, you know, your own device, John chapter 3, is where we're going to look together today. Today we're going to talk about freedom from John chapter 3, and by way of introduction, um, I want to begin with a story. I may have shared pieces of this in the past. I don't know that I've ever put it together in this way before, but my grandmother was born in Oxford, England, or Headington, which is a, which is a suburban community to Oxford, on the 28th of May, 1895. It's hard for me to believe that my grandma um, was actually born in the 19th century. Grandma was baptized a few months later at Holy Trinity uh, Church in Headington Quarry. Holy Trinity Church in Headington Quarry became famous not because of my grandma's baptism. Does anybody know why it's a famous church? It's the church where for decades C.S. Lewis worshipped, and C.S. Lewis is buried in the churchyard of Holy Trinity Headington Quarry. And when Grandma was just 16 years of age, think about that, that just keeps getting younger all the time. 16 years of age, Grandma became an indentured servant. An indentured servant is sort of a modern slave. It's where there is a contractual relationship for someone to serve a family as a servant. And I really don't know how Grandma thought about this, and I don't know what the motivation was behind it, but she became an indentured servant to a wealthy family by the name of Pocock. And this wealthy family by the name of uh, Pocock were identified in the census as being, uh, the, the, uh, the man of the house was identified as being a gentleman. And in looking up the definition of gentleman, it seems the definition of gentleman was someone in British society, <coughs> excuse me, at that time, who had independent means. So they, they didn't have to work for their living. They had independent means. Well, it seems Mr. Pocock went to Canada from England and went to Saskatchewan where he was uh, in a homestead uh, in rural Saskatchewan. And my, my grandma, at the age of 16, became an indentured servant to Mary Pocock to look after Mary's son, John, who was eight months old at the time. And so they got on the Royal George ship on August 9th, 1911 to sail across the Atlantic. They landed in Montreal and then they got on a train that took Grandma Mary Pocock and John Pocock to Saskatchewan. It was a difficult time to be an indentured servant. Grandma was not treated particularly well by Mary Pocock, of whom it was said she was envious of Grandma's uh, beauty. I don't know if the picture here reflects that or not, but apparently that was part of the issue. And we also don't know how Grandma found herself in this situation. I, I don't think she wanted to go to Canada. And the question was, why was she going? Was it because her father 
didn't want to have another mouth to feed, or was it because he saw this as a great opportunity for her to make a future that might be better than the future that she would have there in England? One of the sad pieces of this story is that when Grandma was taken to the ship to go to Canada, never to see her parents again, her father took her there, and his last words to her were, big girls don't cry. And at that point, he turned and walked away, and Grandma watched to see if he would turn to wave to her or express some kind of affection, and he never, he never turned around. And Grandma, even up into her elderly years, was troubled by that moment and what that meant for her and in her life. In a very real way, Grandma was like Joseph. You remember the story how he was sold into bondage. And Grandma, in a very real way, was sold into bondage. She was not free she had to work off her time with the Pocock family. And friends, truth be told, there are many today who find themselves in the bondage of oppression. It may have to do with job or, or with marriage or friendships or family becoming places of darkness for them. Their existence has large pieces where their very life is sucked out of them in the face of manipulation and control and dependence. The Bible tells us that bondage is actually a far greater thing and that every person, 100% of us, find ourselves in bondage to something that has infected the human race, it touches the lives of each one of us, and it's that three-letter word, S, I and sin has affected all of us and bondage in our lives requires deliverance. So in our journey to the cross these 40 days before Easter, we're discovering that this sin problem is the reason Jesus came into our world as a baby in Bethlehem and why he went to the cross. And we're going to look at this as we unpack the story of an individual who came to Jesus and struggle to understand the implications of what the cross meant. And so now we look at the passage. The first couple of verses describe the problem that we're looking at today. <clears throat> now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God for no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. In this passage, we find out several things about Nicodemus. First of all, he was a Pharisee, and although Jesus had frequent run-ins with the Pharisee, it seems this guy was not just a garden-variety Pharisee, but in fact, he was one of the leaders of the Pharisees. It says a ruler of the Jews. He was probably a part of the Sanhedrin, which were the 70 Pharisees that essentially were a council that led the rest of the Pharisees in the nation of Israel at that time. They were under the charge of the high priest. There is reason to believe that Nicodemus was unlike the other Pharisees, however. When we meet the other Pharisees in the stories in the Gospels, 
their mission was to trip Jesus up, to try to ask him questions he couldn't answer, to get him to say things that would get him in trouble. They were threatened by his popularity as a teacher. But that's not what we see here with Nicodemus. It seems he genuinely wants to learn. He had perhaps seen Jesus, excuse me, in some teaching or in the performance of a miracle and wanted to know more. And he came under cover of darkness. That's interesting, coming under cover of darkness because we don't know why. Was it because he didn't want to be seen by the Pharisees going to Jesus? Was it because he wanted to have more time with Jesus in the evening? Was it because rabbis tended to study in the evening? We, we don't know why it was that he chose that. It may be because he just didn't want to be seen. In the Gospel of John, darkness and night symbolize that which is evil. If you recall when Judas betrayed Jesus, what we found happening there was that, that, um, Jesus, that Judas, when he made the decision for betrayal, and you remember he left the Last Supper, when he left, John says it was night. He went into the darkness of night. Nicodemus also lived in another kind of captivity, Incidentally, it's uh, and interestingly, it's a captivity that many religious people live in today. You see, the, the Pharisees didn't want to break the law, the Ten Commandments, and so in order not to break the law, they created a fence around the law. So they made laws on top of laws or rules on top of the Ten to keep them from breaking the Ten. But, but inevitably, that sort of thing doesn't work because... If they felt they were able to do it, then it would lead to pride. But inevitably, they weren't able to do it, and that would lead to hypocrisy, to pretending publicly that they were able to keep all these rules, but privately and in their own hearts, knowing that they didn't do it. It's why Jesus called them whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside and rotting flesh on the inside. But it seemed that Nicodemus wanted something different, and yet he's a reminder also to us that we can be religious people but not live out the joy and fullness of our faith. We too can live in bondage, and that bondage is the same as it was for the Pharisees because while we begin our relationship with God through his grace, through our faith, Along the way, we can begin to feel like our faith is a matter of keeping the rules. It's being good people. And then we stumble, and then we live in the guilt of not measuring up. This morning, we sang a song earlier written by one of the great persons in the history of the church, Martin Luther. He was a lot like Nicodemus. Martin Luther was a monk. He was a spiritual person who had dedicated his life to serve God. But he could never find in his heart 
<clears throat> the freedom and joy that was supposed to be his by following Christ. Because inevitably, as a monk, he felt he needed to be good. He needed to do good things. He needed not to break any of the rules. And he found himself in terrible frustration because he could never be good enough for God. He always failed. He was in bondage. He was in captivity. But he discovered that he could not get into right relationship with God through his own striving. And the key to the Reformation was the rediscovery of the grace of God and the fact that none of us come into relationship with God by how good we are, but in fact, through the cross and the gift of life that God gives us in the cross. In the hymn we sang earlier this morning, he says, did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. If it was reliant upon us, we're, we're doomed. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Don't ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he, Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And he did win the battle. And so we move on to the solution to this challenge in verse 3. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. So Jesus receives this friendly greeting from Nicodemus, and then now he immediately redirects the conversation to the need in Nicodemus' life. He speaks of the kingdom of God and how one enters into the kingdom Remember, the kingdom of God, <clears throat> excuse me, is that place where God's will is done. So we pray the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, and then in our prayer we say what that means, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the kingdom is where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the place where God's will is done is therefore a place of freedom and joy. And the answer to our bondage in Nicodemus' life is the place where sin gives way to new creation, to a new birth. Importantly, the kingdom of God is a place we enter into now when we commit our lives to Jesus Christ. We enter into the kingdom to his rule and reign. It's, it's crossing a threshold. It's opening a door. It's taking a step intentionally into the kingdom. And we take that step not by being good people, but because of what God has done for us because of his grace. Jesus' choice of words here is significant. He says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. The, the word see is a common expression for participation and experience. In verse 36, the same word is used regarding seeing life. And it, don't mean, it doesn't mean that we view the kingdom it means that when we are born again, we step into the kingdom and now we experience the kingdom. And it isn't when we die and go to heaven, it's today. Jesus says in order to enter, one must be born again. Some of your Bibles may have a note beside that, beside again, the Greek word is anothen, and it can mean equally born again or born from above. And interestingly, they're the same thing. To be born again is to be born spiritually from above by the hand of God. 
So Nicodemus responds with incredulity here that somehow a human being could re-enter the womb, sort of a bizarre kind of a kind of a response for another birth. And Jesus goes on to describe the further nature of this birth. He says, how could a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asks. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So notice here, it's not about being born in the flesh. It's not about this body. Rather, to be born again is a spiritual birth. Being born of water in the Spirit has been understood in at least three ways. One is the water of birth. Before a birth happens, the water breaks. And so in order to find freedom through grace and God's work on the cross, you need to be a human being to start with. You need to be born. Another is the waters of baptism as the entrance into this relationship. And a third has to do with an understanding of the cleansing that happens with being born again. In some sense, perhaps all of them are valid. Notice in verse 5, it says, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Remember a few Sundays back, we talked about amen, the word of worship, and we said the amen means that when we say amen to a prayer, we say, this is true. This this applies to my life. Uh, I get this. And uh, it's interesting here because what Jesus actually says that is translated, I tell you the truth, is amen, amen, I say to you. So remember, again, that that amen is an affirmation of truth. Jesus is saying what we're talking about here is important, about being born again. Now, it's important also to understand here that the flesh does not mean that the body that God has given us is evil. In the New Testament times and and afterwards, and in fact, it, it sort of comes in cycles in history, even up to today, something called Gnosticism, and Gnosticism believes that the body is evil and the spirit is good, and that what needs to happen is that the spirit gets liberated from the body. And so their view of the body being evil is that, on the one hand, some of the Gnostics believe in flagellating yourself because uh, the body is evil and that releases the spirit, but others believe in licentiousness. It doesn't matter what you do in the body because it's not important. What's important is the spirit And so it's important, I think, for us to understand that our bodies are a part of creation. And when God created us, he said we're very good. And so we don't find here this dichotomy, uh, but in fact, we do recognize that what's being talked about here is the fullness of what God gives us as we're transformed by the Spirit of God and become the people he intends for us to be. The third thing we're looking at is the means for this happening, beginning in verse 9. Nicodemus still doesn't seem to understand what Jesus is saying and how this can be the case. Jesus chides him a bit for his lack of understanding. After all, he's one of the key Jewish leaders. In verses 14 and 15, Jesus lays out this powerful truth about himself. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. 
So we're on a journey to the cross, and we're on that journey together, and in this, we see that Nicodemus's life has to encounter the cross. The Son of Man, it says, must be lifted up. Lifted up, we understand, to be lifted up on the cross in order for us to have eternal life. And so this morning, we're not talking about the, the theology of the cross in terms of a substitutionary atonement or various other Christus Victor, various other perspectives on what actually happened there theologically. Because it's enough for us, and this is how I usually convey it here, to say that Jesus died on the cross to become the means by which our sins are forgiven, regardless of theologically uh, some of the minutiae around that. The important thing here, I think, is for us to understand that we have been given this ability to be born again by the cross, being born from above, and we enter the kingdom of God, and we are delivered from captivity. We are delivered from the bondage in which we have been held. We see the response here in verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. So you notice that this gift of life didn't start with us. It's not something that we do. It started with God. For God so loved the world began with the love of God. He saw the predicament of a world in bondage and his love compelled him to send his son to become the means by which our sins are forgiven. What do we need to do? We simply need to believe. Paul picks this up in Romans 4 when he says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? In fact, Abraham was justified by works. If Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. A little farther in verse 16, he says, Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. So what Luther discovered, what Jesus describes in the, in the Gospel of John and what Paul elaborated on this once again is that we can't do anything about our own salvation. It's a gift of God. It's an expression of his grace. It's undeserved love. We simply need to believe, and when we do, we put on the righteousness of Christ. He becomes the truth. He becomes the righteousness, the right doings in our lives. And this path includes belief that he said who he was, that his death was not just for the sins of the world, but for my sins and for your sins. And that his resurrection means that we will live with him forever. The path is a simple one. It's just saying Amen, amen. It's saying that this is true. It's saying that I am a sinner, 
that I have been tied by the bondage of sin and that too often I do that which is not right, I do that which is wrong. We call that confession. Repentance is to say I don't want to do that and I lean into Christ because I can't do it on my own and his grace comes to me and his grace changes everything. A turning from this leads to an expression of faith and that guides my life. Too many people live in the expression of bondage in their lives in the midst of darkness and oppression. Jesus said he came that we would have abundant life. His death on the cross brought us freedom from those things that would weigh us down. His death brought us freedom from the rule of sin in our lives. We long for freedom, don't we? Freedom from fear, freedom from addiction, Freedom from bondage, from the control of others. Jesus means freedom. Martin Luther King Jr. put it so good when he said, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. There's a great picture of the bondage that sin puts in our lives in a movie that came out when I was just a teenager called One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. You may remember, some of you, that movie with Jack Nicholson, and it takes place in a mental health institution, and when we begin to see what's taking place on that particular ward, we discover that the staff, inadvertently perhaps, but the staff seems committed to preserving the dependence of the patients. And so their very actions tend to perpetuate the status quo and nobody is getting better. Jack Nicholson comes on the ward as a patient and uh, he sizes up the situation and realizes something needs to be done and uh, he's rather unorthodox and he incurs the wrath of the staff but in, a, in an amazing way, the people begin to get better. The patients begin to get better. And it's so evident as we're watching this in the movie that the patients are getting better. <clears throat> but the better they get, the more threatened is the staff until finally they've had enough and some orderlies grab McMurphy, Jack Nicholson, tie him down on a gurney, take him in and do a prefrontal lobotomy that changes his character, his personhood radically. But he had had an impact on the patients on that ward, and the last scene in the movie is when he's wheeled out at night into the ward, and his friend Chief, who is a Native American Indian, a, a, a big guy, comes and sees what has happened to his friend, and he takes a, a large concrete faucet and he takes it and he throws it through the window and he jumps out and he runs into the joy of freedom in his death in some sense. Joy and freedom came into the life of chief. Through his death on the cross, Jesus Christ has broken the change of our chains of bondage to sin and has given us freedom. One of the things I love about this story in John 3 and the story of Nicodemus is the fact that it doesn't end with John chapter 3 and us wondering, whatever happened to that guy? We see that 
Jesus of Nazareth was one he allowed to break the chains of bondage that he had as a Jewish religious leader. It broke the bondage of sin and religious rule-keeping. In John 7, 50, he's seen standing up for Jesus among the leaders of the Pharisees. And later in John 19, we read this exciting conclusion that includes Nicodemus. From John 19, later Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Nicodemus indeed appears to have been born again, to have become a disciple of Jesus Christ and so found freedom from the captivity of which he had lived so many years of his life. Friends, this morning, if you've never experienced this freedom, I invite you to ask Jesus to break that captivity in your life. Some of us who have been followers of Jesus for a while may have forgotten this great inheritance of freedom that we have in Jesus. And like Nicodemus, we may have reverted back to trying to live out our salvation by good deeds, by, by trying to impress God by our good outweighing the bad. But in fact, when we try to do that, we get so frustrated in the process. We either become proud of ourselves because we think we're doing okay, but... The other alternative is that we live with guilt because we never quite measure up. Friends, we began our walk by God's grace and our faith, and we need to complete our walk where we began by believing in the abundance of grace that has been given to us. So my mother, my grandmother, served the Pocock family faithfully. Many British children were similarly put in a similar situation over about a hundred-year period. If you're, you're curious, you can read about the British home children where the Brits felt they were solving a social problem by having many of their children, mostly from poverty, some orphans, sent to Canada and Australia and New Zealand as a means of dealing with social problems in England. So she told of being frightened by native people on the Saskatchewan prairie who would, who would peek in when the, the Pococks would leave and she was left with the children and the, the fear of what might happen to her there on the Canadian prairie. She spoke about the mistreatment of the woman of the house, Mary Pocock. One day she wrote a letter home to her mom and she talked about how difficult it was for her. And apparently, Mrs. Pocock was in the habit of opening her letters to see what she was saying back to her mother in England. And on this particular occasion, instead of 
disciplining her for what she said. She had a measure of compassion, and she released her from her indentured servitude and gave her a a very small amount of money, but it was enough for Grandma to be able to move from the, the bondage that she had been in in that captivity and to, to go to Winnipeg where she had some family. And in Winnipeg, one of the relatives had a bakery, and so she began to work in the bakery there in Winnipeg. She discovered in the bakery that there was a persistent young Englishman who she thought was quite cocky, who kept pursuing her. He, too, had left England at the age of 16, and his persistence paid off, and eventually he won her hand. Their second child was my mom, and you'll see her in the picture on her father's lap there. And I've pondered the fact that if it wasn't for God working in my grandmother's life, releasing her from bondage, from captivity that she wouldn't have met my grandfather and as a result there would be no Barry and there would be no North Sound Church. (laughs) Friends, unlike my grandmother, we don't have to work for our freedom. It's the gift of God. Simple grace. And receiving that releases us from bondage and gives us the freedom that God intends for us to have. We have this promise in the Scripture that he who the Son sets free is free indeed. And so as we are gathered now around the communion table, we participate in the freedom that God has given us by dying on the cross and becoming the means by which our sins are forgiven. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning for the freedom from bondage that we have in you and that it's not about us and how well we perform. It's about the free gift of grace. Lord, may we today both open our hearts to that grace and may even as we honor your death on the cross through communion, may we celebrate the freedom that you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen. invite you to stand with me if you would. One of the ways that we prepare for our service of communion is to um, recognize that indeed there are things that come into our lives that affect our relationship vertically with God and horizontally with others. And so in the quietness of our own hearts, I'm going to give you a moment to make sure those things are right. It's confession and repentance. And then together we will join together in the corporate prayer of confession before we have communion together. And so, my friends, let us humbly confess our sins to Almighty God. join together in the prayer of confession. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done, 
and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and earnestly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who of his great mercy hath promised forgiveness of sins to all those who with hearty repentance and true faith turn unto him, have mercy upon you, pardon and deliver you from all your sins, confirm and strengthen you in all goodness, and bring you to everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The words of institution for our service come from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where we read these words. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, we thank you for your body broken for us and your blood shed for us. Thank you that through your grace and through your death on the cross, you became the means by which our sins are forgiven and by which we are released from bondage into freedom. In Jesus' name.